Hey, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the IO podcast with Sterling and Tyler. Sterling and I thought long and hard about who we wanted to have on as our first guest, and I honestly think we found the best candidate for that in the entire world. Our first guest is Andy Ratcliffe, and let me tell you why I say that. There's only one person that I'm aware of who has founded a top VC firm, Benchmark Capital, and then gone on to found a unicorn startup in that order. And even if he reversed the order, I'm not sure it's happened before. So in other words, Andy is kind of the ultimate investor operator, and that's what the IO podcast stands for, investor operator. We're trying to have fun conversations with fun investors and fun operators in a more candid format. So let me give a 20-second background for those who aren't aware of Andy and what he's accomplished. He originally founded Benchmark Capital in 1995 with, was it four other partners, Andy? Yes. Four partners, and after 10 years at Benchmark, retired and moved to teaching full-time at Stanford. But we'll talk about this. That retirement only lasted a short while because he ended up answering the founder's call and started Wealthfront. He started Wealthfront and today serves as the chairman of Wealthfront after being the CEO for many years. He's also a lecturer at Stanford GSB and I believe is still a trustee of the University of Pennsylvania. Did I get all that right, Andy? Yeah, Cool. Well, we're stoked to have you on the podcast today, Andy, and excited to talk about your unique perspective on operating investing. Thanks for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. So the first topic, Sterling, and I want to talk to you about, Andy, is this intersection between investing and operating. Having done both of them at a very high level, we'd love to hear from you how you compare and contrast the two. And someone who's a layperson might say the skill set across investing and operating crosses over quite a bit. Do you feel that way or are they more different than they are alike? I don't feel that way at all. I don't think they share very much at all in common. Why do you say that? Why are they different? It's funny, one of my teaching partners at Stanford was a fellow named Mark Leslie, who founded a very successful company called Veritas Software that he built to about a billion and a half in revenue before he retired from that to start teaching. And he was never very fond of venture capitalists, which is why they paired me with him teaching a base level technology entrepreneurship course, because the school thought that would make for a very good experience for the students. Well, Mark didn't have a high opinion of venture capitalists because almost everybody turned him down because Veritas was such a man consensus idea when he started it. Anyway, when I founded a company, he was so excited because I was now an operator. And he said, you would make such a better venture capitalist now, given this experience, wouldn't you? And I said, no, I couldn't disagree more. And he said, why? And I said, well, I think it makes me a better board member because I have greater appreciation for how the sausage is made. So I talk a lot less as a board member now, but it has nothing to do with finding and choosing investments. None of the skills that one learns or needs to develop well to be a good operator leads one to find or pick great investments and vice versa. One of the skills you're probably thinking of as an operator is you've got to be paranoid that things could come crashing down at any time versus an investor, you've got to be- I don't think that at all. Okay, tell me about that. What do you think? <laughs> I couldn't disagree more. I think that's wasted mental energy. Why? Because it doesn't help you. It doesn't help you to be paranoid. It doesn't help you to succeed. What does help you? It's like one of my 
former bosses told me a long time ago. He gave me two great pieces of advice. And one of them was, you should only worry about those things that are within your control. So being paranoid about things that are not within your control don't get you anywhere. All it does is upset you. Fair. We're going to get into this as the discussion continues, but in the early stages of a company, the only thing that you should focus on is finding product market fit. Everything else is a distraction. Why worry about it? The productivity of your sales force, irrelevant. How well your marketing programs are working. Nice, but doesn't matter again if you don't find product market fit. And then as you succeed as a business, you have to learn to be ambidextrous. You have to learn to find new opportunities while you're optimizing existing opportunities. That's not about being paranoid. Andy Grove famously wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And I had referenced it a number of times, and over the years I've heard it referenced even more. So I read it this summer. And what I came to realize is that people have misinterpreted what he said. He wasn't saying you should be paranoid about everything. The book is explicitly about being paranoid about discontinuous innovations. In my language, that means being paranoid about what Clay Christensen calls disruptions. It was not just being paranoid about competition or all the details of your operating. So I think people have misinterpreted that. Do you think that's true as an investor as well? Being paranoid is not going to serve you at all. No, it's wasted energy. Andy, quick question that Tyler kind of hit on, and you're talking about it right now. There's not a lot of overlap in the skill sets between an investor and an operator. Why did you decide to do both? Did you always have the desire to found something outside of? What was it that got you to start your career in venture capital? And then why did you go and operate later on? I only wanted to be a venture capitalist. I had no desire to be an entrepreneur. It happened by accident. So what most people don't realize is that I was in the venture business for a dozen years before co-founding Benchmark. It amazes me that people think that I could have founded a venture firm without any experience as a venture capitalist because people are doing that today. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Forgive me, guys, but it makes no sense to me whatsoever. I always wanted to be a venture capitalist. I came out to go to graduate school at Stanford to try to get into the community. All I wanted to do was be a venture capitalist. And I think you can only really be great at one or the other. And I identify as an investor. I'm an accidental entrepreneur. So the reason that I started WealthFund was when I retired, I wanted from venture, I wanted to give back because I have a life well beyond anything that I ever could have imagined. And so I wanted to give back to the two institutions that really made it possible for me, University of Pennsylvania, my undergrad alma mater, where I became a trustee, and Stanford, where I got my MBA, where I became a lecturer. So one of my responsibilities as a Penn trustee, where I had been involved before becoming a trustee, was to serve on the Endowment Investment Committee. And the premier university endowments, I believe, are by far the best managed, diversified pools of capital in the world. The top ones all do it very, very similarly, and there's a lot of cross-pollination. The fellow who runs the Penn Endowment used to work at the Yale Endowment and the Princeton Endowment, and the heads of the MIT and Stanford and a few other endowments are all former Yale people as well. So they all do it very similarly. And one day, 
the Penn Investment Team did a presentation on how they evaluate managers, and it struck me that a lot of what they did was manual and spreadsheet-based that could be automated with software. I knew about some APIs that were being created in the brokerage world that enabled one to build effectively an 80-20 on what the endowments do. Now, this mattered to me because when I was a venture capitalist, many of the people who worked at companies that I had backed who'd gone on to financial success would come to me for investment advice because they now had one to $5 million and they wanted to know what to do with it. Well, unfortunately, I couldn't tell them to do what I did because even with that amount of money, they couldn't afford access to the kind of investment services I had access to, which is one of the unfortunate things about the financial services world. When I thought of this idea that you could automate what the endowments do, thereby delivering an 80-20, you could, in effect, democratize access to the best investing in the world. Well, I was in a mode of doing social good. Penn and Stanford engagements were two examples. My wife and I had started an innovative cancer research funding initiative based on a venture model. So to me, it was something not that I wanted to do, but I had to do for the social good of it. And I naively thought, well, I'll get it started as a hobby. If it gets some traction, then I know how to hire a CEO. I'll bring in a CEO and let him or her run the business. Well, it took three and a half years to find product market fit, so I was stuck. I never wanted to be the CEO. <laughs> so, okay, fascinating. And when you started out that conversation by saying that you couldn't have started Benchmark in the investing side of your career without the 12 years prior, what were some of the lessons that you learned that allowed you to found Benchmark with your partners? What were some of the things you learned in those 12 years that allowed you to found one of the most successful firms of all time? I'm a disciple of a fellow named Howard Marks, Tyler, I see smiling, you know, <laughs> talk about him all the time, who is a famous investor, famous for being one of the best distrusted investors, but also for his quarterly letter to his investors. And all of his quarterly letters basically say the same thing, but he writes them differently each quarter. And every letter is based on this framework that Howard has, that investing can be described with a two-by-two two matrix. In one dimension, you can be right or wrong. In the other dimension, you can be consensus or non-consensus. Now, obviously, if you're wrong, you don't make money. But what most people don't realize, if you're writing consensus, you don't make money because the returns get arbitraged away. It's too obvious. The only way you make money or significant money or outsized returns as both an investor and an entrepreneur is to be right in non-consensus. The challenge is you know you're non-consensus. You don't know if you're right. So in order to do that as a venture capitalist, you have to take leaps of faith. You can't get return without risk. Knowing which leaps of faith to take requires intellectual property of having seen many, many successful companies so you know the hints of success because you're not going to be right very often, but when you're right, you want to be right in a very big way. So when I joined my previous firm, Merrill Pickard, Anderson and Otter, which was one of the top five firms, it was like drinking from a fire hose, learning these hints of success. I'm a big believer you learn far more from success than you do from failure professionally. I think you might learn more from failure personally, but I don't hire someone for what they know not to do. 
I hire them for what they know to do. So unless you have drunk from the fire hose to learn these hints, you've got to figure it out along the way. And man, that's really, really hard. John Doerr used to say you have to crash a bunch of F-14s before you learn how to be a venture capitalist, meaning that amount of money. So I think it's really, really hard for someone who hasn't been in the business unless they just have a spectacular network because all things being equal, the thing that matters the most is network. Andy, you talked about some hints of like early success and how to pick up on those almost like a hound. I'm not going to share those. That's eight years. All right. So then I got another follow-up, which is early benchmark. If I remember the stories you used to tell me, the big name in venture capital is John Doerr. Is that right? I think he's the greatest venture capitalist ever lived. Can you talk through how you at Benchmark decided to counterposition what you were doing compared to what John Doerr and Kleiner Perkins was doing and how you guys positioned yourself in counter to that? That might be a good insight. We all had unbelievable respect for John, and many of us had sat on boards with him. Remember, the three of the five partners had worked at two of the top five firms in the business, so it's not like we were new to the business. We all had great track records before we started the follow. But we knew that John was unbelievable. And we knew that entrepreneurs were really disappointed when they didn't get John, even though John's partners were very good. So we figured, we took the advice that we gave to our portfolio companies, which is figure out who your biggest competitor is going to be and turn their greatest strength into their greatest weakness. So Kleiner's greatest strength was they had John Doerr, an individual. How do you beat an individual is with a team. And so we came up with a very, very different structure that incredibly hasn't been copied since, which is an always equal partnership. We figured that that would allow us to recruit people of very high quality because it would be an intelligence test. Would you want to join us as an equal partner or somebody else as a junior partner? Equal governance and competition. And that's worked to the point that Benchmark's on its third generation of partners, and they just keep getting better and better. Do you think that qualifies as a non-consensus insight that Benchmark utilized to start? Like, is that the type of insight you're talking about with the Howard Marks reference? Yeah, but I'm referencing it more about the individual companies, the insights of the companies as opposed to the firm. But yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why we succeeded. There was non-consensus. It wasn't clear that it was going to be right. We thought it was going to be our biggest advantage. And Sure enough, to this day, it's Benchmark's biggest advantage. The other thing that we decided to do was Kleiner was famous in the entrepreneurial community for helping their portfolio companies work together. They were Y Combinator way before Y Combinator. Y Combinator, people refer to as the alumni and the network. Kleiner Perkins used to call the Koretsuit. In the 1980s, it was believed that the Japanese were going to take over all of the business. Unfortunately, that didn't happen for them. But when I went to business school, 82 to 84, the way you answered every question in class was the way the Japanese did things, and you did very well. <laughs> anyway, Kleiner wanted to model their portfolio like a koretsu. Entrepreneurs really liked the opportunity to work with other Kleiner Perkins companies. The downside, once they got into the Koretsu, is they were pushed to work with other Kleiner Perkins companies. And people become entrepreneurs often because they don't want to be told what to do. 
So we took the opposite side of that positioning and said, the, you're the star, we're the stagehand. Kleiner often took the position of chairman of their boards. We never would take a chair because we thought that implied a level of importance that was inappropriate for a venture capitalist. So it was all about the entrepreneurs, the star, we're the stagehand, and we're here to help you every bit as much as they do, but it's your company, it's not ours. And that was taken to an unbelievable degree soon after I retired when Matt Kohler changed the website to just the logo of the firm to imply that we're not important. If you want to find out, I know our portfolio companies is you can go on Crunchbase or anywhere else on the internet. We don't need to brag about ourselves. We're not that important. Love that. So I want to, in the last 10 or 15 minutes we have here, transition to the topic that I've learned the most from you, Andy, which is product market fit. And then maybe have you tell a story or two about early signs of product market fit you saw a benchmark, maybe at Wealthfront. I don't think you have product market fit for an investment firm. Fair enough. Can you share the original insight you had around product market fit? And I think you observed something that Don Valentin was talking about. Can you talk about that? Sure. Another one of the top two or three greatest venture capitalists ever was Don Valentine, the founder of Sequoia Capital. Don had been a semiconductor executive, a sales and marketing executive for National Semiconductor before he founded Sequoia and was a phenomenal marketer. Anyway, I pride myself on being intellectually curious. I only always want to get better. And I try to learn from everyone around me. I had the good fortune to make it. Back in the day, we used to actually syndicate deals. So I would sit on the boards of companies with other great venture capitalists. And I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of Sequoia partners. And I noticed how very differently they prosecuted the business from us, and I really wanted to understand their formula. Don's view was that if a startup can screw something up, they will, not because they're so bad, but they're under-resourced, under-financed. So he was looking for startups that had such strong pull from the market that it overcame the ineptitude of the startup. Startups that succeed do not succeed because of the unbelievable superpowers of their founder. That's revisionist history. They succeed because <laughs> the market is just unbelievably desperate for the product. And so having observed this, I spent more and more time talking to Sequoia, their portfolio execs, and I put a name to it. So while I gave the name product market fit for this, it was really Don's invention if such a thing existed. So finding a market that's desperate for your product is product market fit. It's not finding a product for a market. Talk about that last insight because it seems like a lot of people misinterpret that or misunderstand it. What's the distinction you're making there? Most everything you read about entrepreneurship would lead you to believe that entrepreneurs evaluate markets, look for problems, and come up with solutions. That will lead you to the right and consensus quadrant. That's really easy to do. Anybody can do that. What great technology entrepreneurs do is look for an inflection point in technology that enables a new product, and then they try to find a market that wants that product. Because without change, there's seldom opportunity. Building a better version of something that currently exists 
seldom, if ever, leads to success in technology. It's solving a different problem for which people are desperate. So it requires an inflection point that enables a new product, and then you find a market. That's non-consensus, and that's what leads to the big returns. And when I talk to you about all this stuff, I only care about big returns because as a venture capitalist, that's the only thing that moves the needle. If you want to build a little company and sell it for $5 million, that's not what I'm talking about here. Makes sense. So I wanted you to share maybe some examples at Benchmark where you started to see crazy product market fit among your portfolio companies and that caused you to get conviction in them. And the one that came to mind was eBay, but I'll leave it open to you. Do you want to tell the story of maybe some companies that started to see this early product market fit to where you got excited and invested? Sure. Well, eBay really only had a couple, I think five employees when we invested and it was growing at 10% a month and it was profitable. To us, it was a no-brainer. Now, many people look at it as, what, eBay, uh, Beanie Babies? An exchange for Beanie Babies or marketplace for Beanie Babies? We thought that it could actually be applied to a lot more things. The CEO we recruited first wanted to make sure that she won in collectibles before spreading herself too thin into the other markets. So she wanted to pursue other markets from a position of strength. Is this Meg Whitman? This is Meg Whitman. So that's why she really focused on collectibles longer than others might have, which in hindsight, I think was very much the right answer. But I think the story that you're referring to is after we invested, I remember one of my partners in a partner meeting saying, well, let's see, there was an FBI investigation into the company because of fraud. And when that was announced in the Wall Street Journal, the growth rate went up. <laughs> and then a story came out that they were, somebody was selling Nazi gear on eBay. And that came out and the growth rate increased. And then the site was down for 26 hours and the growth rate increased. <laughs> so that to me defines product market fit, that nothing could stop this thing. I remember when Robinhood ran into all the troubles that they did during COVID with GameStop, an article started coming out that this was this represented trouble for Robinhood. I remember turning all my colleagues saying, their growth rate's going to go up. And sure enough, their growth rate went up. It's just more awareness of a business that people love. Is your focused on the product market fit and the thesis that everything that can go wrong kind of will go wrong at a startup? Don't worry about it. Okay. What do you look for in the entrepreneur? The thing that I look for, so let me tell you a story about one of my partners, Alex Bolkansky, and what I learned from him. Alex grew up in Paris. He came to the United States for college. He went on to found the first digital video company, the company that created MPEG. It was called C-Cube Microsystems, and it built a billion-dollar business. Anyway, Alex told me a story that always stuck with me, and that is that when he was growing up, his dad was a renowned physicist. I don't remember what field of physics, but he was a renowned physicist. And whenever physicists in that field would visit Paris, his dad would invite them over for dinner. So as a teenager, he had to sit at dinner listening to physicists talk. And one thing that he noticed was 
that truly superb physicists explain complex issues in simple terms. Great physicists explain complex issues in complex terms. And good physicists couldn't explain what they're doing at all. So people who are really good at what they do, who have a tremendous command of what they do, are able to explain it in very, very simple terms. And they are the ones who are more likely to be able to pull off the non-consensus bit. Why is that, you think? Because they can tell a story that allows them to recruit? No, because they can see the inflection point and understand what that means. My friend Mike Maples from Floodgate Capital is writing a book all about the importance of the insight to the success of a startup, something that I completely agree with. This idea of grit and all that stuff, I don't think that matters. I'm totally contrarian on this. I think it's all the quality of the insight and whether or not you're able to find a market that's desperate for that insight. And so Mike believes that these people live in the future. They can see the implications of that inflection point and what that can solve way before anybody else can. I remember when I met Jeff Hawkins, the founder of Paul, years ago, and he described the importance of building what we then called PDAs, personal digital assistants, at a price point below $300. Well, everybody else was trying to build them for $2,000. So he took all of the functionality out to get to the point that he could offer something for less than $300 and make a decent gross margin. That's why Palm succeeded and everything else failed. I love this. I want to make sure I understand the point. You're saying what you look for in the entrepreneur is the deep understanding of the underlying technology and how it's going to change markets and what solutions it's going no, to. No, not how it's going to change markets, what products it enables and how that product can address a desperate market. Love that. The problem is every company, once it succeeds, revises history as to what they set out to do as though they were solving a problem in the market when that was the furthest thing from what they did. But that's more consumable, and therefore marketers change the story, revise the story to something that consumers would prefer to hear. When you talked about Wealthfront, you started the story by saying it took us three years to find product market fit. I don't know if I've heard any other unicorn founder start their journey off with a statement like that. It's usually like, oh, we immediately kind of knew Bullshit. That's complete bullshit. <laughs> it is. No great company I know of succeeded at their first business. It seems like there's always one to three years of kind of wandering in the wilderness, but we don't talk about it. We use the revisionist history. The best term I've heard, Vinod Kostler says, you stumble upon the market that actually is desperate. When you succeed, you often stumble upon the market that's desperate. So Andy... Maybe one or two last questions here, and then we'll wrap up. You've often said that, and this is along the same point on product market fit, that if you launch something and it doesn't get received well immediately, in other words, strike a nerve, that it's unlikely to change by adding new features, which is a little counterintuitive to folks. Why is that the case? If it doesn't work, I should improve the product. So why does that not work? Because the only way that you're likely to succeed as a startup is if you find a desperate customer. A good enough alternative wins. If the incumbent offers something that's good enough, 
they're going to win because they're far less risky for the consumer to use. So why take the chance on something that's slightly better? For someone who's desperate, there isn't a good enough solution. Well, does adding features make someone desperate? I don't think so. I don't think it makes them at all more desperate. It means that you're in the wrong market. So it's much better that you take your idea to a different market. Now, if no other market wants it, the business shouldn't exist. Yeah, that means your insight's wrong, right? It means your insight is wrong. And if your insight is wrong, the likelihood that you're going to succeed is very, very low. Changing the insight is a restart. And restarts have very little probability of success. You mentioned earlier you respected John Dory, you respected John Valentine. What's another one or two investors you respected Howard Marks? Who else do you really respect? And then I'm going to ask the same thing on the operator side. Who's an operator that you like deeply, deeply admire? The one that I revere is Reed Hastings. Why? Well, I had the good fortune to sit on the board of his previous company to Netflix. We stupidly turned him down three times. He didn't start Netflix, interestingly. His VP of marketing at his previous company did. But what I learned from Reed was that every year, Reed would tell the board, this is what I'm betting the company on. And he was very explicit about it. Now, if the bet failed, the company wouldn't go out of business. It would take a step back. But if the bet succeeded, it did exceptionally well. It was an asymmetric bet, which is something that few people worry about. Most people think about the percentage of the time that they're right, not about the magnitude of success when they are. If you're a baseball fan, this is slugging percentage versus batting average. Batting average is irrelevant when running a company or making investments. It's not the percentage of time you're right. It's the magnitude of the success when you are. And so Reed instinctively knew this. He had never managed anyone before he started pure software. But every year he knew to do this. And so everyone on the board understood what was going on, what bet we were taking. Everyone in the company was headed in the same direction because they all understood it. If it didn't work at first, nobody panicked because we all understood what we were trying to do. A great example of that is when Netflix tried to separate its DVD from streaming business, when Reed recognized that streaming was going to be the great big market that he didn't want to miss. The execution on separating the two wasn't ideal. The issue was that the user experience for DVD is completely different from streaming. If you recall, DVDs had queues. So you had to put movies in your queue that you would then get in the mail, whereas streaming is instant. So you couldn't have the two user experiences on the same website. So we tried to separate it in two websites. People went nuts. The stock went down 85%. What did Reed do? He raised money at a depressed stock price to buy more content to go after the streaming business. He combined them back into one site and he buried the DVD business. So if you still wanted to subscribe, you had to really look hard to find it. But he was not going to miss streaming. He was not fired when the stock was down 85% because everyone in that company, including the board, knew what the bet was. So I revere Reed Hastings. And then I think what distinguishes a great CEO from a not-so-great CEO 
in a mature company is its ability to layer new businesses on top of the existing business. If you just keep optimizing what you have, then you run into Yahoo. LinkedIn had to sell because they had no act two. Compare and contrast that with Netflix, DVD, streaming, original content, Amazon. First, you had books, then you had all the other e-commerce things. They have AWS. They have all sorts of other fantastic businesses that go along with what they originally did. They keep layering things on top of one another. And interestingly, most companies do it through acquisition, not through internal development. So great CEOs are sort of like venture capitalists. They have to figure out what other businesses to add to the portfolio. And you don't do it through little acquisitions. You do it through major development initiatives and major acquisitions, which, by the way, have to have a high chance of failing, which is why most people aren't willing to do that. You have to bet the company. You have to bet the company. And I used to teach a case on this in a class I taught, the large company innovation. You should have seen the articles about Reed Hastings after the Quickster debacle, calling him one of the five dumbest CEOs in America. <laughs> All right, Andy, we're at about 35 minutes. I want to be respectful of time. Sterling, any last questions you think we got to ask before we let Andy go? The only one that I want to ask, Andy, I don't know if this will make the cut, but what startup do you think is doing what you just talked about the best today? Who's still a private company that makes those kind of asymmetric bets that is understanding the underlying technology? And who do you think is doing it well today? I haven't been a venture capitalist for 18 years, Sterling, so I'm no longer in the game. I can't really tell you. I know that there's a company called Databricks that is doing this really well, that has layered on two really interesting businesses. They started with Spark. They layered on the Data Lakehouse. And now they're getting into a bunch of ML tools. So there are some out there that are doing an exceptional job. I'm just not as current as I once was. Fair enough. Thank you.